I am now in the fall semester. I'm taking two classes again. They are Christian ethics and church history. Church history is taught by Ken Collins. Uh, re I've really enjoyed him. This is my first class with him. Extremely knowledgeable on church history. And I think he's one of the leading experts on John Wesley. That's right. He's like one of the top three Wesley scholars in the world or something like that. Yeah, he teaches a class on Wesley that everybody takes. And I'm really looking forward to that one. But yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about church history. This class starts with Jesus and goes up, I believe, to the Reformation. That's right. This is Church History One. So I wanted to start with just history in general. I was curious how you two felt about history uh, growing up in classes. Just what's your general view of the subject of history? I generally liked history, um, especially was interested in world history because I feel like in school you get so much of the American history, which is not very long. Mm. Now I can kind of see the re the importance of American history and the significance of it. And even though it is short, it's um, pretty unique just in the way that the country was structured and everything. So I can understand why that is important. But I always thought, you know, there's the whole world has a history. And usually we just learn about one sort of narrow strain from Greek. Well, I guess it'd be Egypt and then Greeks and then for some reason, we always learn about Egypt over here. Um, <laughs> but then, you know, the Greeks into the Roman Empire, then how that was like, obviously a big influence over what the American government would be modeled after. Mm -hmm. um, and then the British European history leading towards America, everything was kind of geared towards like what brought us to where we are. But I was always, yeah. I always thought that in school, at least the history of all the other places was a little bit lacking. <laughs> That's true. I was talking to a student last night who just finished an Old Testament class that he's taking dual enrolling it in college. Mm. And so he finished his Old Testament class and then he's also taking history, like uh, world history or something. And he was talking about how cool it is that those like the way they overlap. Mm. And I think for a lot of people, those are kind of like separate fields in their mind. Mm. Um, I think for me growing up, there was a lot of overlap between the way that I understood learning history and learning the Bible. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important that people see those things merging rather than like the Bible is something separate. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't know. I, I've always had that perspective a little bit of when you're learning world history, it's also a part of, you know, God's work throughout the world. Yeah, definitely. I always really enjoyed history when I was homeschooled because it was it just felt like story time to me, <laughs> like just get to hear interesting <laughs> yeah. stories. And uh, I specifically remember later on in my homeschooling on occasion, mom and I would get in the hot tub and read history, do history class in the hot tub. <laughs> Homeschool works. <laughs> uh, but even when I got to... I never had any uh, hot tub classes in my homeschool. Yeah. yeah, the hot tub didn't come around until after your, your homeschool time. <laughs> Did you do much school out in the yards, though, Daniel? I have a lot of good memories of just sitting out in the front or backyard. Not a lot, but some. Mm. Yeah, my main me memories of like learning history at home was like sitting on the couch reading, or else like uh -huh. in the backyard or on the trampoline. Yeah, <laughs> yep, on the trampoline. <laughs> yeah, mom liked to be out in the sun. If possible. I feel like uh, she didn't, I don't have many memories of of her actually doing work with me except for math because she had to really like push me through on that 
that probably I feel like everything else it was kind of just like i had to do it on my own i guess that's because she was busy with us <laughs> taking care of us where when it came around to me she didn't have anything else either of you to focus on <laughs> or i'm just forgetting that's highly possible too <laughs> or you're just a better self-teacher i'll just have to ask her if she <laughs> if she remembers she might not remember either yeah <laughs> So yeah, I always liked history, and even when I got to Emmanuel, really enjoyed it. I had a really fun teacher at Emmanuel named Mr. Preventure that we all really enjoyed. Who, again, told it like a story. Uh, he made it come alive in an interesting way. So I definitely think a lot of people's perception of history is based on the teacher they had, and if they were able to make it engaging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Even like my church his- history, my church history classes at Asbury. I had different professors Mm -hmm. for church history one and then church history two. I had Dr. Collins and Mm -hmm. I learned so much more in in the second one with Dr. Collins and found it so much more interesting just because he's such a good teacher. Yeah, it I mean, almost like any field, but it has potential to be really boring if it's not taught well, but it can be fascinating if it is. One of the first things we started talking about is the perfection and the timing in which Jesus came. Hmm. Just the the uniqueness of the moment that Jesus entered into human history. There's some really cool things just around what was going on in society and history right in that moment when Jesus entered into it. Okay, that's good. Um, People definitely have like questions about that. Like, why did Jesus come Mm -hmm. when he did? And uh, Mm -hmm. some people are like, if Jesus just would have waited until there were video cameras, then everybody could have just, they could have just filmed it. (laughs) Or other people are like, why did Jesus wait so long? What about the thousands of years of people suffering before Jesus got there? Like, why Mm. didn't he come earlier? You know, so there's on both sides. I think people kind of question that. Mm. That's interesting that you say on both sides, because that points to maybe neither side. Yeah, there's a balance. He had to come at, at some point. And so maybe neither of those extremes would have been as good. Uh, certainly neither from my perspective. Yeah, well, I've definitely I've definitely heard people ask, why didn't Jesus just come like right after Adam and Eve sinned? You know, mm. <laughs> so that's, mm. that's interesting because that's that's I the concept of like come as early that is as possible. An interesting question. Mm. Yeah, but I think then it's almost like there's no impact of sin. Hardly. Mm hmm. Yeah, you you certainly don't get redemption and, and restoration in the amazing way that we get it with the story of the gospel. So when thinking about the time in which Jesus came, what are some of the things that stand out to you guys? Pax Romana. <laughs> Elaborate, Elaborate on that. Yeah. Well, that's the main one I've heard before is why it was a good time uh, for the gospel to start spreading because the Roman Empire was covering such a large part of the world mm-hmm. that made uh safe to travel. They built roads everywhere that people could travel mm-hmm. by. Um, there was more communication going around the world at that time than there would have been beforehand. Yeah, that was one of the main like that. that was actually one of the main ones that stuck out to me contributions of the Romans was yeah safety from just law and order uh, military presence whereas a decade earlier to go by ship like let's say like Paul did you know traveling to Rome by ship um, you probably would have been attacked by pirates or like just traveling up by road attacked by thieves if there was a road and so with Rome you get yeah military protection order 
And like you said, the road system was also a huge Roman contribution. Uh, Also, more unification of the language had happened, right? The more... Right. So yeah, that'd be one of the Greek Mm. influences. Yeah. So the more... Well, and Latin everywhere from the Romans, I guess. Yeah, but most everybody in the Roman Empire at that time would have known how to speak Greek. Yeah, so when we look at these, so Greek, Roman, and Jewish influences, we've said Roman, Pax Romana, Law and Order, Rhodes, Greek, we just mentioned universal language. Uh, Daniel, you kind of mentioned philosophy. Yeah, well, I hadn't, uh, less with the Romans, but with the Greeks, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Greek philosophy, obviously is foundation of Western philosophy and mm-hmm. inductive and deductive reasoning and logical consistency and all of those things that paul employs later in his right in his preaching yeah i think that's a really good point having a structure for thinking about the world and the meaning of life and all of that Mm -hmm. and then from the jewish perspective i mean uh obviously you read through the whole old testament and that's the jewish story yeah so we get more of that from a biblical perspective how the story of the jews was leading up to the point of jesus Mm -hmm. Um, specifically at the time Jesus came, I'm thinking about the, uh, oppression of the Jewish people under different, Mm -hmm. several different empires leading up Mm -hmm. to the Romans. And I'm also thinking of the reconstruction of the temple, the fact that the temple was in full use under Herod. Mm -hmm. And so those things had a Jewish impact on, on people's expectation for the Messiah, as well as understanding of sacrifice and all that. How come the, uh... The Greeks never took Israel? They didn't make it that far? Yeah, they did. We just never hear about the Greek occupation of Jerusalem or anything like that. From the Babylonians to the Romans, there's like four or five different nations that occupied Israel. Oh, okay. Wait, this is getting back to the statue with the clay feet and all that. (laughs) It was like this series of different occupations of Israel from kind of where we get at the end of the Old Testament up to the point of the New Testament begins. Okay. Yeah, so I think all of those contributions that you mentioned from the Jews are good, Joel. I would say I would add one just on a broader perspective would be monotheism in general. It's a huge contribution of the Jews. Oh, yeah. That's one that Dr. Collins emphasized as well. So, yeah, the way that the political contributions of the Jews, Greeks, and Romans came together in this specific time I think is uh, very unique, very interesting, and does point toward the the perfect time for Jesus to come into history. One time we were talking about this with some of my youth. I don't remember why we were on this, but it was a discussion question. And so everybody was talking about these like very spiritual like uh, reasons, you know, like these students were throwing out these different spiritual reasons mm-hmm. about like understanding like sin and the fallenness of humanity and all that kind of stuff, which is good. And then one of the kids was like, I think it's mostly because of roads. <laughs> and uh, I was like, no. And everybody's kind of like, like I could tell the other students were just kind of like, what is he talking about? And I was like, no, I actually completely agree. I think that <laughs> there's like very practical reasons why it was a good time. I mean, and possibly we didn't talk about this in class, but crucifixion comes to mind too. That's a good point. Yeah, the way that the Romans, yeah, penalize people. Did it have to be that way though? Pretty unique. Is there, are there prophecies that indicate that that would be the method of on which he died? The only one that comes to mind immediately is in the Old Testament where it says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, that Paul quotes that. Uh, and then Moses, you know, raising up the snake on a pole, Jesus uses that and says, just like the snake was raised up, so the Son of Man will be raised up. Hmm. So there's definitely some of that illusion. 
Okay. His side is pierced. His bones are not broken. Like all that. Yeah, yeah. So that sounds like it fits pretty well. It's all yeah. That was the method that it needed to be. Yeah. So it, so yeah. Jesus comes at this really interesting time in human history. So obviously you have Roman occupation at this point, but they've they've let the Jews continue to practice their faith. They've let them continue to be fairly autonomous. Yeah, autonomous. Yeah, they've they've left them alone to an extent as long as there's no huge issues related to order mm-hmm. or opposition to the government. Um, but they've uniquely for Rome allowed them to continue practicing their faith. Typically when Rome would go in and occupy places, they would force them to uh, recognize the Roman pantheon and to start worshiping the gods of Rome. But with the Jews, they made a unique exception because they realized that the Jews were not going to do this. Mm. And so as long as they remained peaceful, they allowed them to continue to just worship their one God. So you get some interesting sects of Judaism that emerge. You have um, the Pharisees, right, are the ones we read about most commonly in the Bible. And they're just like the jerks in the Bible. But... (laughs) (laughs) But if you look at it from a historical perspective, the Pharisees were really the ones that were trying the hardest, I would say, to accurately represent and maintain Jewish culture. Mm. They were standing out. They were being different from Rome, Uh, whereas the Sadducees, for example, um, were more apt to go along with Rome. They were more apt to play along with the culture, accept the culture, sort of become Roman but still uphold Jewish values. So we see the Pharisees. Okay, so go ahead. I don't, I am not exactly sure. Like what is the point of the Sadducees? It sounds like, would they be sort of like deists in America or, you know, in the modern world? It was like, Oh yeah, God created everything, but he, he's gone now or, you know, he doesn't have anything to do with it and we just have to do our own thing. Yeah. From, yeah, that's, that's a good comparison. There were definitely more, like focused on this world and the political like structures, I would say um, like drawing it to what we have in like America maybe, or it would be like Pharisees were the hyper conservatives and Sadducees were the hyper liberals. Very much Mm -hmm. like the Pharisees wanted to like maintain the traditions and all that kind of stuff, like very conservative in the way that they approach things. The Sadducees are very liberal and like they're trying to use the government in order to like achieve what they think is best. And they're more focused on the, like the here and the now and like progressing from where we've come. Okay. But with the Pharisees, I I can kind of understand that they have like a clerical role, right? Or they're or not really, I guess they're just educated people. They don't, they're not all Levitical people. No. So they don't all work at the synagogue or is Pharisee a career? I don't think so. I think it's just a sect of Judaism. Okay. It's not an occupation necessarily. That's a good question. I think it's just a type of religious leader in the specific sect. Now that I think about it. Yeah. Now that I think about it, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm seeing it more like that, but I guess in my head, it's always been like Pharisees means, the priesty people who like run the religion mm. and then Sadducees. It's like, I know they're a group that doesn't believe in the afterlife or doesn't, you know, life after uh-huh. death, because that's like, basically that's almost all we know about them is because, yeah. and, uh, or all I know about them. But 
I never had really thought like, so they probably, so they're not the ones who are like working in a synagogue or the, you know, temples or whatever. So what are, what are they? Are they like lawyers? And I just hadn't thought of it before. But now, now that we bring it up, maybe neither of those are vocations. Uh, I don't know for sure, honestly, how that worked. Um, but my assumption would be that there were both. There were some that were like career Pharisees and career Sadducees, especially probably those who were like in the Sanhedrin. Mm. Um, but then there may have been some that mm. it was like part of what they did in addition to something else. But I don't know for sure. Let me look it up. Yeah, I'm not sure either. But I bring this up to emphasize the fact that there were different sects of Judaism. There was a wide variety of practices and beliefs within Judaism already before Christianity came about. So, yeah, Pharisees, Sadducees, you also have the Essenes, um, which were like the hermits, kind of <laughs> like they they were on the opposite extreme of the Sadducees. They decided to completely separate themselves from culture, um, almost like an Amish or, or something. So they went off in isolation and mm. lived in caves and were very rigorous about keeping the law. Completely individually or like in little communities? They, would they had communities and uh, okay. their big contribution to modern day is the Dead Sea Scrolls oh, from right. Qumran. Uh, we also have the Zealots, which were the extremists, political extremists, I suppose. Um, they were violent. If you've watched The Chosen at all, you get a good perspective of the zealots yeah, they, rev revolutionaries yes they were trying to bring about the time of the messiah by uh, taking matters into their own hands in a sense and uh stabbing people <laughs> <laughs> but yeah they were famous for assassinations of of government authorities hmm. of romans only or also of like pharisees and stuff romans um, bringing all this back to as it relates to the early church and church history. So when Christianity came about, you know, immediately following Jesus, the perception from Rome is that Christianity was just another one of these sects of Judaism. I mean, the early Christians and church saw it as a fulfillment of Judaism. But from Rome's perspective, it was just a, a new sect of Judaism. Right. Mm. And that's really important as it relates to persecution, because like I said, there was this unique exception of of Jews from the Romans. And so early on, very early on, the Christians were just lumped into that same category. And so at the very start of Christianity, as as the gospel really started to spread everywhere, there wasn't a lot of persecution because Rome didn't really understand what it was. Hmm. Um, so that's important toward the very initial spread of Christianity immediately following Jesus. A really interesting question that Dr. Collins asked us in class that I think is good for everyone to think about is what is the foundation of the church? That's a pretty broad question. Peter. Peter and Peter. the succession of papal authority. <laughs> well, you know, on this rock I should build my church. So you're referring to Matthew chapter 16? Just when I hear that question, what is the, what did you say? Foundation. foundation? What church? is the foundation of the church? Yeah. Then like that verse naturally comes yep. to mind of, you know, a rock on which, you know, it's built. 
If it weren't for that verse, I wouldn't answer that way, really. (laughs) Yeah, focusing on that verse, the way I would interpret that passage is that the rock is Peter's confession, not Peter himself. Uh, And what was Peter's confession? It's, It's that you are the Messiah, the son of the living God referring to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that ties in with how Dr. Collins answered this question is uh, he would say the foundation of the church is the word, the logos, the living word, and also the written word. Hmm. I think of in the New Testament where it talks about Jesus being the cornerstone or the foundation or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So that would, I guess, apply there. So the primary foundation of the church is Jesus, the word. So because of that, another very important factor is the apostles, the people that were that lived with Jesus, that walked with Jesus. That's where much of the New Testament comes from, is the, the writings and the witness of these people that lived with Jesus. And so I'm very aware of the apostles because of the New Testament and because of just, I guess, the way I grew up in church. Growing up, I was very aware of the apostles and their impact uh, and, and how they have affected the church. But going one step further, we also very important for the early church is the people that knew the apostles. So we have Jesus, the people that knew Jesus, the apostles and lived with Jesus. But then here, the people that I never really thought about or heard about is the apostolic fathers is what we call them. But they're the people that knew the apostles firsthand. Mm-hmm. Two degrees of separation from Christ. I think this is important because uh, this is where most Christians are in the same boat you were, where we kind of have a decent understanding mm-hmm. of the early, early church, the New Testament church is what we call it, um, right when mm-hmm. the church is born in Acts and you get the New Testament church throughout um, basically the next 40 years after um, Jesus. When the people were still alive. Yeah. And because that's what the New Testament writings are about. Mm-hmm. But then immediately following that, most people have no no clue like what kind of happened after that. Yeah. And so they're, the, they're these apostolic fathers, people that were discipled by the apostles that I had never really heard of. Um, people like Polycarp and Ignatius and Clement of Rome that come out right after. I mean, they're around when the apostles are still alive. Yeah. They're interacting with them. Which is awesome. Like, how cool is it? And we have writings from these people, too. Yeah. So, like, how cool is it this guy's like, oh, yeah, I was discipled by John, Mm -hmm. and uh, I heard him talk about his time with Jesus and everything. It's like, that's really cool. How come we don't ever read or learn about those guys in church? We should. I mean, this past Sunday, yeah, this past Sunday, there was a reference to Polycarp in the sermon at a harvest. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that those things should be that should be more often. These people who were who were right up there with the early church. Absolutely. So before we talk more about the apostolic fathers, what happened to the apostles? Church tradition, there's legends about what happened to the apostles, what became of them after what we know from the New Testament. So I want to talk about that a little bit. The one that we do know for sure is James, so the brother of John, because he was martyred uh, in the book of Acts. It talks about him being martyred. He was the first that was martyred and the one that we know for sure about because it's in the New Testament. Yeah, okay. And then all the others are based on tradition. Right. Uh, oh, so yeah. mm-hmm. is there not very good evidence for all, any of the other? You can have you can have good evidence through tradition. There's there's some really good evidence for some of the others. Okay, varying degrees yeah. depending on which one you're talking about. Um, what are some of the ones that you've heard about? Different. Well, Daniel's been to India, so I'm sure he's heard about some from that. Uh, well, there's only one who went to India. 
uh, uh, but that was Thomas. And uh, yeah, okay, we can start there. So I went to the place where they say is where he was hiding in this cave and then he was speared to death. Okay, that's interesting because I read about that. So you went to that cave where they say it happened. Yeah, yeah, there's a Catholic cathedral built over it now but it's like you know you go to the back of the cathedral and go down a basement and you're in a cave you know (laughs) wow um with like a little you know graded window where where i guess the actual opening would have been i suppose or maybe the opening is where they built the church i'm not sure Mm. you know it's a cave and there's a there's a large table like rock in the middle that that they say you know that he would like use as his table and he would like kneel and pray at it and stuff Being that the Catholics are running that area and the way that the Catholic Church often is in these other countries, um, there's a lot of aspects of their story that feel that make me feel a bit scrupulous. Legendary. Yeah, there's they have this um, place where water is like in between a rock and they say that, you know, it never runs out and you can drink from it. But there's science can't explain like scientists have been. They say that like scientists tried to figure out where the water's coming from. And they can't. And they, so they say that's a miracle. Huh. Grooves in that table rock where they say, you know, he would lay his arms when he prayed. And that seems a little strange to me. And like a footprint some here you know, in the rock. And <laughs> He's like rubbing his arms against the rock as he prayed. <laughs> I gotta make, leave my mark against my prayer bench. Yeah, so all the details, you know, I was kind of like, eh, is this? You know, I don't know about this. But the fact it does remain that it's pretty believable that he at least was in that area. Mm-hmm. And that's in Madras or Chennai okay. down in southeast India. So it's cool to, to at least know that like, wow, one of the apostles came all the way here from, I mean, that's a very far way Mm -hmm. from Israel. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the tradition is that, yeah, he was hiding in a cave and the Hindus didn't like him and they were like chasing him and that he ran for a while, but then they got him on the top of the mountain and, and uh, stabbed him with spears. That's, that's the tradition for him. So that's a good example of how we can learn stuff from these traditions, but there's also some legendary elements that you have to take loosely. But I think Thomas is a really fascinating example. There's some early writings about him going to India as well mm. um, cool. that have some legendary elements. So for writings from someone else, not from not his own writings. Um, I don't think we have any writings from Thomas. OK, there are writings called the Acts of Thomas written near the end of the second century. So quite early. That is early. So with that alongside the fact that the Indian church has always claimed alliance with Thomas. It makes it pretty likely that he did in fact go there. Mm -hmm. So this writings, the acts of Thomas has some legendary elements. And so for years it was pretty much discounted as fable. Um, But it, it talks about him going to India and um, him interacting with a a specific King Gondoporas was his name. Cool. And apparently this King was looking to build a palace This is how the story goes. The king was looking to build a a large palace and Thomas offered himself for the job, Hmm. uh, but was apparently so the king would give him money that he was supposed to be using to build the palace. And he was just giving the money to the poor. (laughs) (laughs) And so what kind of story is that? And maybe maybe there was like a language barrier there. They didn't quite understand each other. uh, The king supposedly had a brother named God, G.A.D. Okay. Gad. And the brother died and came back from the dead somehow. And upon his return, 
he talked about seeing a heavenly palace that had been made by Thomas Gifts. And so, you know, Thomas in giving to the poor was making a palace in, in heaven. So anyway, you can see how this has legendary components to the writing. And so for years, this was just completely discounted. But interestingly enough, in recent times, a coin was discovered that actually proves that there was a king with this name and he indeed had a brother named Gad. So there's some aspect of yeah, truth that there. Thomas probably interacted to some extent with this guy. Yeah, I think that's a good point in general when it comes to just like historical writing is there's ways that we can figure out the truth even mm-hmm. in the midst of some like legendary stuff. And so you hear these stories mm-hmm. and it can be like, oh, wow, that's ridiculous. Like, I'm not going to believe that. But then it's like, well, you don't have to throw out everything. Like the concept that like Thomas went to India and interacted with this king maybe uh, and yep. the king had a brother, right? That's That shows that there's like at least some stuff you can, you can glean from it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it could be something along the lines of like the king for whatever reason had it against Thomas and then the brother who was, you know, on his deathbed or was sick or something like that uh, had some kind of vision or something to say that, you know, Thomas is doing good work and we should spare him or something. There could have been something along those lines. Mm -hmm. So that's Thomas, I guess. Have have you guys visited any of the other disciples? (laughs) Final points. I I mean, uh, others we know some of, I mean, Peter, Gets a lot of uh, attention because he was like the leader of the apostles, and there's the, yeah, the tradition of him being mm-hmm. crucified upside crucified down. Crucified upside right? down, so that yeah. he wouldn't wouldn't be crucified in the same no, way. No, I meant have have you been to his? Uh, do we know any other locations that are claimed to be where it happened? I know there are a couple places in Israel that are like the burial place of John, and then maybe there's a couple places mm-hmm. that claim to be the burial place of Mary. Or something like that. Hmm. Seems strange that Thomas would be the only one who has such a clear, you know, like, here's the spot. Well, Well, I didn't know that there was a spot except for the fact that you've been there. So there may be others. I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are too. James is famous uh, for going to Spain. Okay. Tradition says that he went to Spain and the Spanish church certainly claims him. Andrew was also supposed to be uh, crucified, right? I know that there was a few a few others. It wasn't just the Peter thing. There was at least one other that was crucified traditionally. Uh-huh. And like somebody, somebody was like boiled in oil, I feel like, beheaded. Yeah. So I will say one that... There's associated with an axe, I think. Okay, sorry. Going back to things we actually know, okay. Thomas, we're almost certain, went to India. Um, details mm-hmm. are unclear. Uh, Peter and Paul were essentially certain that they were murdered, martyred under Nero in Rome. And the early tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down. Mm. Both of those, we essentially know that that was the location mm-hmm. and, and time. Paul was more likely beheaded because he was a Roman citizen. And so they, they wouldn't have mm. crucified a Roman citizen. Like I said, James, we think, went to Spain. Again, there's the, the church in Spain has early ties. Um, John is the one who is said was boiled in oil. Now, uh, this is difficult because we know from early historical documents that there are multiple Johns, uh, multiple people in the early church with the name of John. So that's kind of confusing. So the book of Revelation, we sometimes hear was written by John the Elder is how they distinguish that. And likely Revelation was a different John than the disciple John. Um, The disciple John, we think, potentially was boiled in oil, but... Again, we don't know for sure. We we don't know for sure. 
Isn't Philip seen as having gone like to Ethiopia or something, or is that just because the of the relationship with the eunuch story and all that? Yeah. I mean, the uh, caustic Christians or whoever down in Ethiopia, they believe themselves to have some sort of direct lineage. Well, right? because there's tradition that the Ethiopian eunuch went back and started a, the first church or something. So that oh, would go okay. back to Philip then. That seems likely. Uh-huh. So just to summarize all this, then we have these traditions of the apostles. Some of them are very probable and they're very interesting, but we don't know for sure where they all ended up. I do want to throw in, though, like, I think we can have a tendency to throw out the just like testimony of tradition mm-hmm. if we don't have other evidence. But I think the opposite is how we should handle it. Like we should accept tradition unless we have evidence that contradicts. And yeah. it, it's just good to like in general think, okay, well, this is the tradition. So like, I'm probably just going to assume that that's true unless I have some good reason not to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point. That goes with a lot of things like authors of different books of the Bible and stuff. There's a lot of them that we have like a traditional author, but then like we don't know for mm. sure. But I always just say, well, I'm just going to assume that that's the, the case unless I have some like good reason not to. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people are really interested in the early church. And I think we should be because it's like Jesus founded, you know, the early church and the, had the apostles. They knew Jesus. And so how did the church function really early? But I also think that people kind of get an unrealistically positive concept of how the early church ran and can think like, oh, we just need to do things like they did in the early church. Like we just got to go back to the early church. And um, even in the New Testament, we get a lot of issues going on in the early church. Uh, so it wasn't like a utopia, like church utopia. And it is really important for us to learn all that we can about how they did things. Well, if you read but... some of Paul's letters too, you can you can see there is some like crazy stuff going on too. I mean, I, I think it's in First Corinthians where he he's like, you know, just want to clarify that no one should be saying like Jesus be cursed during worship or something <laughs> <laughs> like that. It's just like, whoa, what was going on with these people? And Paul is often encourages the church not to debate about secondary matters. You know, he's like, don't mm. worry about like seasons and days and all that stuff. So there's this discussion going on even in the like very beginning of the church. So Paul's encouragement to them is don't worry about those secondary things. I think like how like it's so applicable to the church today that people get all caught up with these secondary matters and make divisions over them. And I think the encouragement should be like, don't worry so much about all that stuff. It's not a big deal. It's good. So a few of the early church leaders that we can be aware of, uh, I did want to mention Clement of Rome, which I don't I don't know a ton about him. Um, we didn't talk extensively, but he was one of the first leaders of the church in Rome, um, which, you know, we think then he would have had interactions with Peter and and Paul, potentially. Um, he was born in 30 AD and lived until 100 AD. So Right there at the beginning of the church. And just to remind everybody, like he said, 30 AD is when Clement of Rome was born. So like Jesus mm-hmm. was crucified around from 30 to 33 AD, somewhere in there. So Clement of Rome was born right around the time of the crucifixion of Jesus. So obviously we've been growing up in this time where the church is spreading. Yeah. So the one thing that I know for sure about him is he wrote a letter to the church in Corinth, um, which is actually the first, the earliest church document we have outside of the New Testament. So really interesting. It could have very well become part of the New Testament, uh, but I believe that the New Testament is uh, divinely orchestrated, and so it it wasn't 
canonized. Yes. Yeah, I just yeah. read that actually, that letter. Oh yeah. Last month, like last month, I think I read it. I'm going through a volume of early church writings and starting with cool. the very early church father. So right now I'm reading Ignatius, but so I read... what? What was that uh, Clement's letter focusing on? I felt honestly, it felt like one of the letters of the New Testament. It focused on sure. like uh, standing strong through persecution and being unified. Mm-hmm. A couple things that were interesting to me out of it. He like goes through, just like in the New Testament, a lot of times they draw back to the Old Testament as an example. He does that mm-hmm. where he like points to people in the Old Testament and shows like, see how they were they were faithful through persecution. Mm-hmm. And then he mm-hmm. moves on to the apostles as well. So he says, and then even in our own time, mm-hmm. Peter and Paul, like he brings up these people, they were faithful and he like points out some of the things that they went through. And so I just think it's interesting how he kind of like connects the Old Testament and then goes on into the these like these are immediate examples that we know as well of people who've been faithful through, through mm-hmm. persecution. So you should be too. Cool. And I think one of the one of the reasons it it wasn't in the Bible is because he wasn't an eyewitness. That was one of the things that they really valued was whether or not the authors were like eyewitnesses of Jesus and were like or apostles or whatever. Mm-hmm. So second yeah. second hand. Like you said, he was, uh, I guess, three ta- three removed from Jesus. You know, Jesus apostle, then like Clement of Rome. So that would have been a would little bit harder. Twice? Yeah, twice removed. Would have been harder for his writings to get in because of that distance. Interesting. And again, kind of like we were saying with some of the, the church tradition, uh, that there's value in knowing these things. There's value in reading these early writings. Uh, they're really fascinating and give you an insight into the early church. Hmm. Um, another notable... Apostolic father is Ignatius. He was the bishop of Antioch. Um, so if you remember, Antioch is a large church in the book of Acts. It's the first place that people were called Christian. Um, so yeah, Ignatius was a, a bishop there. It's the, also the church yeah. that commissioned Paul and Barnabas for their missionary work, kind of, right. their, kind so, of their home base. So, so yeah, huge early church. And we've got um, several writings of Ignatius to different churches around his area. Yeah, and most famously... Uh, he was martyred in Rome, and on his trip to Rome, he wrote seven letters. And so those are very well-known, some very interesting writing, especially giving us insight into the way that the early church viewed martyrdom, uh, because Ignatius specifically wrote to the Christians in Rome, who it seems were planning to try to rescue him, to try to stage something to save him. And he specifically wrote to them telling them not to, telling them that he was ready to embrace martyrdom and uh, ready to be honored as a Christian in that way. And that was common for early Christians. Which moves us on to Polycarp. Right. And yeah, so Polycarp, who we have a really uh, fascinating account called the martyrdom of Polycarp that gives very interesting, clear details about the way in which he was martyred. Polycarp was a disciple of John. So he talks about, and I think Ignatius was too, actually. Yeah, Is I that right? I, I didn't hear anything about Ignatius being a disciple of John. Tradition identifies Ignatius along with his friend Polycarp as disciples of John the Apostle. Yeah, I was just reading the same thing. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Tradition, we respect tradition. That's right. Anyway, did you want to say anything else about Polycarp's martyrdom or life? Yeah, I think we should talk about his his martyrdom because that's fascinating. Did you read about that in your book as well? Yeah, I read the martyrdom of Polycarp, which uh, is what uh, my dad meant. Our dad, <laughs> which is what, uh, <laughs> which is what dad mentioned this past Sunday in church was from the martyrdom of Polycarp, where he talks just about how 
it is so clear that martyrdom should be embraced when you really understand the reality of eternity and salvation. Mm. And so the yeah. specific line that, that he used was something close to, why would I not embrace a moment of burning to escape an eternity of burning? Oh, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just such a vivid vivid imagery, but she really shows the clarity that comes when you have an eternal perspective. Yeah, let me find let me find some of his quotes real quick. Well, while Paul's looking up some of these quotes from Polycarp, I'll just say I think it's important for us to remember that we have this lineage of Christian faithfulness and Christian tradition from the time of the New Testament to now. And that's one of the benefits of studying church history because sometimes we can get removed and we just think like, oh, we've got the Bible and then like here we are now so long since then. But to really, I guess, understand a little bit of these, the lives of these people who've led up to where we are and that it's the continuous story of of the Christian church. So I think that's a, a really important. All right, what you got? So another, another famous line from Polycarp. So they're, you know, threatening him with various things as the Romans tended to do to try to get them to recant uh, because they would let them go if they did. And Polycarp says in response to threats, for 86 years I have served him and he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? Another great quote. That is great. And then the quote that that you were just referring to, he says, the fire that the judge could light would only last a moment. Whereas the eternal fire would never go out. Yeah, that's that's so vivid. And then finally, after he was tried, he said, Lord, sovereign God, I thank you that you have deemed me worthy of this moment so that jointly with your martyrs, I may have a share in the cup of Christ. For this, I bless and glorify you. Amen. Yeah, I mean, that's something we're so far removed from, like what it actually looks like to share in the suffering sufferings of Christ. Um, at least we're removed from that here, mm-hmm. but that was such a real thing for these early church fathers when when persecution really started was uh, mm-hmm. sharing in Christ's suffering as a way to be unified with him. And I just want to emphasize mm-hmm. again just how, like you were saying at the beginning, Joel, how tied in Christianity is with history. Um, you really can't get away from that. And I think a lot of non-Christians in our culture don't recognize how historical Christianity is and how historical just the person of Jesus Christ is. You have to come to grips with who the person of Christ was in history. And you really can't get away from that. And if you're not going to believe in God, then you need to have an explanation for the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, We have Tacitus, an early historian in the first century that talks about Christus, you know, refers to Christ. This is not a Christian. He's a Roman historian and he's not the only one we have have several others plenty the younger talking to trajan it's tied in to history and so you have to recognize jesus and you have to try to understand who he was everybody does you know i talked a little bit earlier about the perception of christians from the romans right so at the beginning uh, they just saw them as a sect of judaism And so the earliest persecution was actually by the Jews. Um, We forget this in modern times because we're we're used to people talking about Christians persecuting Jews. There's a lot of cases of that later in history. But at the beginning, when the Jews still held the power, they were persecuting Christians. And so that's what we see in the New Testament is uh stoning of Stephen, i guess would be the first and like clearest example that comes to mind right yeah and paul 
Oh, crucifixion, I guess you could yeah. also <laughs> say is a big example. Yeah. <laughs> but then once you get into around 54 AD is when Nero, Emperor Nero, comes on the scene. Nero is famous for being crazy, essentially. Is yeah. that how you guys mm-hmm. would put it? Yeah, I think so. And sadistic. And so what was the big... Uh, event that happened during Nero's time. Do you guys remember? Yeah, the burning of Rome. The burning of Rome, yeah. Right. So yeah, 64 AD, huge fire in Rome. And we don't know for sure what the case of the fire was, but the scapegoat for Nero became the Christians. These new strange sect of Judaism that they were starting to realize was maybe its own thing. Maybe this wasn't Judaism. And so, yeah, so Nero was really the first to persecute on a wide scale other than the Jews, the first Roman emperor to start persecuting. And like we said, that's like, that's when uh, Peter and Paul were martyred. We're under that persecution. We have writings from that time by Tacitus and others talking about his persecution. He would kill Christians in a whole variety of ways, but famously he lit his gardens with Christians, Christians set to the torch and then paraded through on his chariot to entertain his guests. Um, So some really sick, disturbing things during the time of Nero. So soon after that, Christians became more distinguished from Jews. The Roman people recognized them as different. Uh, Some of the perceptions that they had is they considered Christians to be atheists. So there's some irony there in our modern context. But the early Christians were called atheists. Because they didn't believe in the pantheon. Right. Yeah. And so they were hated uh, as atheists, which I think is really funny. It is funny today because like yeah, today in our, our time, it's like atheist versus Christian or like the two spectrums. Uh, they were seen as haters of humanity because they would not gauge in society. They wouldn't go to the Colosseum because a lot of the things in Roman society were closely tied with worshiping the, the Pantheon in some respect. What about the bathhouses? It was a modesty yeah. thing, I yeah. think. The early Christians were also seen as cannibals. Oh, right. oh yeah, that's so interesting. You get these uh, Jewish writings about them, mm-hmm. these like cannibals. Yeah, widespread rumors. Um, Is that just as an effort to discredit them or because of the Eucharist? Because of communion, yeah, because that was the main thing that they did in their yeah. gatherings. That was mm-hmm. like the central act of their worship. And they didn't like let outsiders in to that. Mm. It was more of a like closed worship s- service for those who had been baptized as mm. Christians. Yeah, I see. Yeah, so there was some secrecy around it. Yeah, and just like today, whenever people are meeting in secret and there's some, you know, privacy toward a meeting, you're gonna get some gossip. It usually some you know wild tales about what's going on in these secret meetings. It is really interesting though when you read these non-Christian writings about Christians and about. Um, the Bible and about Jesus, mm-hmm. there's strong evidence when it's coming from somebody who's not a Christian. You know, when somebody says, oh, they worship Christ, Christ as a God, you know, when somebody who's not a Christian says that, yep. then that like, okay, like early Christians firmly believed that Jesus was God. Um, they worshiped him. They also said they were participating in orgies because um, the early church, when they would gather, they would do what they called a love feast, fellowship and dinner basically. Um, But there were a lot of crazy rumors that came out of that because they would also greet each other with a kiss, a holy kiss, right? The greet each other with a holy kiss thing is weird. (laughs) I definitely think it speaks to the like familial nature of the early church. Really, really what they 
believed was when you become a Christian, like this is your true family and these are your, these are your brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. Mm -hmm. And so there should be that sort of love like you have among Mm -hmm. your own family, among fellow believers. And, but it did get like misconstrued because that level of unity and love that they had for each other Mm -hmm. was so Mm -hmm. abnormal. Yeah. So all this uh, misunderstanding and skepticism led to persecution. So we talked about Nero and his persecution. Um, Then uh, Trajan was right at the end of the first century. We know a lot about him because Pliny the Younger wrote to Trajan and we have his writings. And so this was a governor and essentially he wrote to Trajan to say, hey, I've got all these Christians uh, and I don't really know what to do with them. <laughs> so here's what I've been doing, but I need you to tell me like how I should respond to this situation. Um, here's a little snippet from his letter to Trajan, the emperor. He said, in this course that I have adopted, in the case of those brought before me as Christians, I ask them if they are Christians. If they admit it, I repeat the question a second and a third time, threatening capital punishment. <laughs> and if they persist, I sentence them to death. Uh, Some of the people that I've interrogated cursed Christ, a thing which is said genuine Christians cannot be induced to do. Um, So like Joel was saying earlier, we get these snippets in the early church. I did a a teaching for some of my discipleship students this summer on the church history. And I just did like a one one class and try to just teach as much of church history as I could. So Mm, I did like early church uh, as basically from Jesus to Constantine when he was converted. That's like an era I feel like it's helpful. So Mm -hmm. Constantine was an emperor who became a Christian and that's when Christianity became not only legalized, but then became like um, eventually the religion of the Roman empire. And so up until Constantine, which is like 325, right? 313 was the Edict of Milan. So yeah, 313 uh, is when things really shift from what I would say is like the early church era. And so in this really early church era, we've talked about there's a lot of the apostolic influence from these apostles who followed Jesus. There's a lot of influence from eyewitnesses still and the uh, eyewitness account of Jesus. Um, A lot of letters being written. Mm -hmm. That's like one of the main ways that we get insight is letters being written to different people or to different churches. And then um, the effect of persecution on the church. I think those are some of the key themes of this era. Yeah, I would say heresies as well. Heresies, definitely. Trying to distinguish what is the truth versus what is uh, heresy, what is untrue about following Jesus. Yeah, and it's interesting how both persecution and heresies really shape what the church becomes in a profound way. Um, There's the famous quote by Tertullian that the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. And so we see that in the early church that a lot of the spread came from persecution. Um, We also see how heresies helped to define truth, like Joel was saying. And so uh, a lot of these early heresies that would arise would force the church to establish what the truth was, um, to establish what was orthodox. So in closing, um, the major shift was with Constantine in the fourth century. Oh, and we've, uh, that's we've really jumped a long way then, right? Up to the fourth century. The early church is the first three hundred years, basically. Okay, or, sorry yeah. to interrupt. I just I just didn't know that we were gonna go so far, so fast. I know it's so much material. It's really hard to. <laughs> there's so much. Couple things on my mind, real quick. 
these early church writings are all like available for free online. Yeah. So um, if you want to read some from Polycarp or Ignatius or Clement or Origen or pa- mm-hmm. Papias, like these people who were in the first 300 mm-hmm. years of the church, you can go online and read some of that stuff. Some of it's very yeah substantial, but there's some of it that's not, they're not quite as big. You find some letters, they're a little bit smaller and you can get an idea. And then one other thing that we never mentioned, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Oh, right. That was huge. Um, which is like maybe the most, one of the most significant events in the early church. Mm. Um, that happened in 70 AD. So really soon, like 40 years after Jesus, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. And that was huge because it it further divided Christianity from Judaism because there wasn't that common place to do worship and sacrifice and stuff had a huge effect, obviously, on the Jewish religion. But I just thought we should mention that as the destruction of Jerusalem, destruction of the temple happened in that early church. Definitely. Hmm. Yeah, that's really important. And I wanted to wrap up just by reading a paragraph from one of my textbooks. But did you guys have any any final thoughts before I do that? So there's so much to talk about. Um, I know. Sorry. We, we haven't talked about like how they did worship, like this concept of like house churches and what that looked like in the early mm. in the early church. People are really interested in just the way that Christians did church. And so um, we may need to talk about that sometime in the future. Also, the like socialistic uh, model. People always talk about that. Mm-hmm. All things in common. Yeah. 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 So that's New Testament church stuff. And um, we didn't really talk through any of those. So that may be something we have Mm -hmm. to hit in the future. Always more to talk about. So much. But as we enter into this time of Constantine, I wanted to close with a paragraph from the the textbook. Uh, And this is authored by Gonzalez. It's called The Story of Christianity, Volume 1. Whether this was in truth a victory, so this is referring to Constantine coming to power and eliminating widespread persecution. Whether this was in truth a victory or the beginning of a new and perhaps greater difficulties will be the theme of many of the chapters to follow. Whatever the case may be, there is no doubt that the conversion of Constantine led to enormous consequences for Christianity. What would happen when those who called themselves servants of a carpenter and whose great heroes were fishermen, slaves, and criminals suddenly saw themselves surrounded by imperial pomp and power? Would they remain firm in the faith, or would it be that those who had stood firm before tortures and before beasts would give way to the temptations of an easy life and social prestige? These were the burning issues that the Christian church had to face in the next period of its history. 